0: This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, is interviewed about his book, Love Your Enemies, by Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. This conversation took place in March 2019. Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um Arthur, thank you for being here. C SPAN, thank you for letting me interview you about this really good book.
1: Congratulations. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you. The last time we did the show was when we were talking about your fantastic book, that bestseller, that changed a lot of people's lives, including mine. You asked a lot of hard questions and I plan to repay the favor. Here. <laughs> oh no. Um, Can I redo your interview?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you are only in your mid fifties. I know mm-hmm. we've already People have already heard your introduction, so I won't redo all of it. But mm. you're freakishly productive. Mm. Uh, for being mid-50s, you've already had three full work lives. Um, you are an accomplished, sort of globally renowned musician who then laid, it, laid down your horn and became an academic. You became a behavioral social scientist. And uh, lots of people cite your work in an academic context. Lots of lay people like me cite your happiness studies all the time. You've written two best, mini books, but two of them national bestsellers. And then you went on to a third career where you ran a think tank that's the American Enterprise Institute that's very important in Washington, D.C. and beyond. And you took it to new heights and raised a lot more resources and hired a lot more interesting people. And now you're about to transition to a fourth career, lifelong output-level career. Uh, <laughs> and as you're making the transition, you write this new book, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. So thank you for sharing it with us today. Delighted. Um, I want to I start by having you um, unpack for us what is contempt and how does it differ from anger?
1: <laughs> you know... People often say that American politics today, or that ideological differences in general, whether it's on any dimension, whether it's religious, whether it's social, but particularly politics, is too angry, that Americans are too angry with each other. And that's actually not right. Anger is a hot emotion that says, I care about what you think. The problem that we have in America today is that we have too much of what, there was the great 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, he called contempt. That's the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another human being. Contempt is a cold emotion. It says, I don't care about you. You're beneath caring about it. It takes anger and it kind of mixes disgust into it, kind of like ammonia and bleach making this compound that's really toxic. And there's a lot of social science research that shows that when you treat somebody with contempt, that person will never forgive you. There's a, a, a guy who teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle, a guy named John Gottman, the world's leading uh, expert in marital reconciliation. And he, you know, he, can, he can counsel a couple for for one hour, just interview them, and know with 94% accuracy if they'll be divorced within three years. The guy's uncanny. And he's bring, brought thousands of couples back from divorce court, and what he's looking for is signs of contempt, eye-rolling, sarcasm, derisive humor, dismissal. And so that is the way to divorce court. It's also the way for Americans to hate each other. It's a way for ordinary citizens to, to not listen to each other anymore. One in six Americans, Ben, have stopped talking to a family member or a close friend on the basis of the 2016 presidential election. That's not because of anger. That's because of contempt. Huh.
0: Uh, Stay with the analog to broken marriages for a little bit. If he's 94% successful at diagnosing this and yet able to save some of these marriages, what's the magic for him and then what's the analog to what you think your quest is in this project?
1: It's a great question. So John Gottman has saved thousands of marriages. And the way that he does that is by, by inducing people to stop behaving with contempt because the contempt is not what they really feel. Most couples, they they do love each other, but they've gotten into an unproductive form of communication where they roll their eyes or say that what they heard is the dumbest thing that they've ever heard. They criticize constantly, but that's not what's really written on their hearts. The problem is they get into a cycle. You criticize me, I criticize you, you roll your eyes at me, I roll my eyes at you. And so what he does is he makes them stop. You know, one of the things he'll say is that they need to to say five loving things for every criticism. And, And it's weird because when couples are getting ready to divorce, they can't think of anything but criticism. Now when you're first in love, you can't think of anything to criticize. So he makes them go back to when they were first in love, but you have to do it kind of manually. I mean, some couples need to carry around notebooks and write down things they're gonna say that are nice before they can get to a criticism. This radically changes the whole form of discourse. Now what's the analog to politics today? The answer is that we need to break the habit of talking to each other with contempt. You know, a lot of people watching us are on social media. You and I are on social media. You and I joke with each other on social media sometimes, but, except that we have an audience of hundreds of thousands of people watching us as we're you know, joking around about whatever because we're friends. You know, the, the problem is that people who don't know each other, who, God forbid, are anonymous on social media, are trashing each other. They're talking to each other with contempt. You're not worth caring about. You're an idiot. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's the discourse that we've gotten into. We do it. You know, I, I saw a clip of myself on TV last year, and I was somebody said something I disagreed with, and I rolled my eyes. I, I'm guilty, Ben. I'm guilty. I don't want to be that way. And that's what breaks down the bonds of, of fellow citizenship, the ability to listen to each other. And look, we don't need to agree. Agreement's bad. Agreement's a kind of a monopoly. We need a competition of ideas, but we, we don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better, and that means breaking the habit of contempt, just like couples do when they figure out how to get back together again.
0: So you mentioned a few things about social media. I want to come back to that later. A really important flag we should put in the ground here. But first, you used the word addiction a little bit ago, or yeah. m- repeatedly through the book you yeah. used the word addiction. You talk about mean tweets uh, and how we've become addicted to them. I don't want to talk about that as a way to get to social media yet, but the addiction habits around contempt yeah. to conflate addiction and habits.
1: So I'm going to ask you in a bit to distinguish them as well. Right. But what, what is it to be addicted to contempt? So, contempt is a manner of communicating with other people, it's a manner of speaking, it's a manner of expressing yourself, it's, it's, a, it's a way to sort of efficiently uh, say what you think and that habit uh, can be an addiction insofar as it passes by, it doesn't actually go through our prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that processes conscious emotions and conscious actions. On the contrary, there's a part of the brain, a very deep part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens about the size of a walnut in the very center of your deep brain has evolved more than a million years ago and it's it's part of the sort of the lizard apparatus of you know processing rewards and staying alive and so what happens is when you do something that gives you a little stroke you know something that makes feels kinda good you'll start to build up a habit now whether it's chemical like smoking cigarettes or or whether it's communicative I do something and I get an immediate reaction and I like it your nucleus accumbens is gonna start programming programming that into your brain. That's how addictions actually work. And so when you find yourself communicating in a particular way, you, you say something over and over and over and over again, that's not being processed by your conscious brain. It's by your unconscious brain. That's how habits form. And that's also the secret to how to break habits. You need to get a lot of time when you're stimulated to do something. You, you can wait before you respond. When, when your mom said, hey Ben, count to ten when you get angry before you respond. She's saying, extend the time between stimulus and response. Why? So you can retrain your nucleus accumbens, so you can get past this lizard brain by basically saying, I feel this, this is how I'm going to react, because it's my habit, but I'm going to react this way instead. And when you do that, you get a different kind of reward and you can actually break a bad habit of contempt. That's what John Gottman is telling his couples to do. He's making them wait before they criticize by saying loving things. That's reprogramming the nucleus accumbens. And we can do the same thing by not responding on Twitter. When we get an email that we don't like or we get a message on Facebook that we don't like or we hear somebody say something that we disagree with strongly, to wait before we react and then to consciously put something in that's positive instead of negative and see the reaction that we get to that. And that's a large part of what I'm talking about in this book. It's a handbook on how to do that.
0: Before we we get to the cultural and public square implications, stay at the marriage piece for a a minute. Is it possible to retrain yourself to do that no matter how long that habit has built up? How how optimistic are you about this as a success strategy to count to 10? It's one thing to do that if you had, you know, C.S. Lewis has the four loves and there's the sort of romantic infatuated phase early on and a later life marriage is a different thing. Than that early uh, sort of you know overwhelming waves of Mm -hmm. love part early in marriage, you can retrain those habits if you get into bad habits six months in, six years still sixty years. Do you believe it?
1: Well, I I do believe it because I've actually seen examples of it. But no one is is going to claim that it's easy. I mean, if you've done something for six days, it's easier to break the habit than you've done it in 60 days. I mean, Aristotle talked about that, about habits, how habits are virtues, et cetera. And and you've read this. You're more sophisticated in this stuff than I am. Um, So we know that the longer you ingrain something, the harder it is to break. But everybody can. And the key thing to understand is if you want to be a better leader, if you want to be a more unifying leader— by the way, why? Because you want to be a more persuasive leader. And Anybody who's paying attention to politics today knows that we're not getting any place because we're locked down. We're in a standoff. Obviously, if some side actually wants to win, they're going to have to be more persuasive. Treating people with contempt won't do it because nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. So this is the wrong strategy if you actually want to win. Very practical. Then you've got to do something differently. You can be the master of yourself and break these habits. And in so doing, I mean, I've got the evidence in this book that, the, that not doing that, that behaving in a different way will make you more persuasive, a better leader, happier, and ultimately more successful. You, you can do it. If it's been 60 years, it's going to be harder, but you still can do it. You uh, mention in the book
0: some of the things you pray about. Yeah. And you say one of the things you do is you thank God for oxytocin. Let's stay <laughs> at the brain for a minute. That's got to confuse your children when yeah. you're praying around the family dinner table. Yeah. Why do you do that, and what does that mean?
1: Oxytocin is a, is a hormone, it's a neurotransmitter, and it's often called the love molecule. It's interesting, you know, when uh, in 1969, Richard Nixon, he commissioned a study uh, for the Rand Corporation because there was this huge problem going on in Vietnam. Twenty percent of soldiers in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. Twenty percent. I mean, this is catastrophic for the war effort and a ticking time bomb for when these guys came home. And they said, what do we do? And they had all these policy ideas and what are we actually going to do? OK, so the guys come home, they brace themselves and 90% of the heroin addicts stopped using heroin overnight when they got home. Stop, Just stopped. No intervention, no policies, no detox, zero. And only 5% of them became re-addicted in the following year. What happened? The answer is, well, you get the answer when you talk to anybody who's been addicted to heroin. They'll tell you it feels like you're being enveloped by love, pure love. That's how heroin feels. Well, when you come home, you do get enveloped by pure love. We only found out decades later what chemically was happening in the brains of these people coming back from Vietnam, which is that they were getting a a hormone that is stimulated when you feel love, which is called oxytocin, and those receptors are filled by opiates. They're filled by heroin, and so that's what it gives you—the simulation of love. That's the reason that when people get dr- addicted to drugs and alcohol, almost always it's 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 doing something, it's repairing something that's broken inside of a person. They're they're self-medicating in a way. So that's the key thing about oxytocin. When you see your when you see your kids, when you see your wife, you know. Remember the first time you helped? De- you, did you help deliver your children? I did. And you know they they make you feel like you're helping, but you're really not. You're kind of, they're kind of keeping you out of the way, and they give you some scissors. To, you know, but but the first time you looked in their little eyes, and it felt like something popped in your brain. That mm-hmm. was oxytocin. You know when you see your friends, when you see your when you see your parents after a long time, when you see your wife, when you haven't seen your wife for two or three weeks because you've been on the road because you've been doing a campaign, and that that little pop inside your brain that's oxytocin. That's a miracle. It's in my view. That's God's way of actually helping us to bond to each other in this miraculous way. And, and this is something I talk about a little bit in the book, because when we bond to each other more, we get more pleasure. We, it, it stimulates us to, to work for unity. That's why I thank God for oxytocin. <laughs>
0: um, this is earlier than I want to get swallowed by social media, but stay there for a second. Um, that requires social media to be used as a supplement to human relationships mm. if it's going to complement what you just said, as opposed to a, a substitute for yeah. human relationships. You and I know each other, so if we mock each other on social media, we know that it's, it's playful, yeah. right? It's not, it's not really disdain. It's right. not condemned. I, I believe in you. I care about the projects you're working on. Yeah. Um, but when someone who doesn't know someone else comments on social media... There's a quick lever that you're going through, which is, is this positive or negative? Is this critical of me or is this supportive of me? How could this possibly work? Your oxytocin theory of popping as a form of bonding, how could that ever work in a world that's more and more rootless, more and more (laughs) mediated by distance and technology?
1: It's a really big problem, and in and, and point of fact, what we need is something that you've talked about in your last two books, which everybody needs to read if they want to understand how politics and, and human relationships interact. This is the key thing. For, for my money, the, the oeuvre of Ben Sasse, as senator, writing books, is you're in the middle of politics, you do work in history and social science, how do the two relate such that politics can be net life enhancing? That's what these two books do, as far as The Vanishing American Adult and Them. It, that's, we, that's That's what I got from your books. Okay, and, and the way that I see it as a behavioral social scientist and somebody who's really interested in the neuroscience of this stuff is to understand the extent to which we cannot substitute for human relationships. For actual in-person human relationships with social media cannot be done. Why? Because the human relationships that we get uh, involve the oxytocin, involve the neurochemistry they involve the, the the looking into each other's eyes that's how humans were developed you know we, we just don't have the evolution we don't have the the hundred five hundred thousand years of twitter to make it possible for us to you know develop a neurological link one to the other i mean when, when you and i talk to each other on twitter we're joking around that's a compliment to our in-person friendship. When I see you, I say, Ben Sass, I think Ben Sass is great. I'm really happy to see you because I know you as a, as a, as a flesh-and-blood person. The problem is that social media from, among strangers can't get that done. And as a result of that, social media between strangers is not a, it's not a compliment to a real human relationship. It's a substitute for a real human relationship that does not give you the biochemical, uh, does not meet your needs, And even worse, it's a contempt machine because it reduces you to some guy with a Twitter handle. It reduces you to something that's literally less than human. And God forbid it's anonymous. Then I can dehumanize you and I can dehumanize me. And that's the reason that we're going down this terrible rabbit hole of contempt, largely driven by the relationships that we see on social media.
0: So how, how can you fix that
1: without uh, completely unplugging? Because you, I
0: checked your Twitter account an hour ago before we got into the studio, and you've been tweeting out practical things, mostly from this book, but ways to tackle the culture of contempt. But using a medium, Twitter, that is largely, at least in the political space, I think sports Twitter is a foretaste of heaven. Yeah. But <laughs> political Twitter, uh, its, it's uh, main ingredient seems to be contempt how, right. how can we solve this problem unless everybody unplugs? Because I don't think you're recommending that.
1: No, I'm not. And, and I don't, well, even if I did, it wouldn't be practical. So there's no reason for me to recommend that. It's not going to happen in the meantime. But one thing that I do recommend is that, that people think about the social media behavior and say, is this complementing my life or is this substituting for real relationships in my life? And, and you can see both. I mean, I've got, I mean, my kids are 16, 19, and 21. Um, they're, they're pretty good on social media. I mean, they use it because they want to actually set up you know, where they're going to meet, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, my oldest son uses Facebook to figure out where he's going to meet his buddies in college um, or they're going to have a meeting for something. He, but he doesn't use it as a substitute for his human relationships. So I think that people are actually, notwithstanding all the scary things that we see, I think it's actually getting better. And one of the things that I recommend is to say, hmm. Am I substituting for real human relationships? Because if I am, I'm going to get an oxytocin deficit. I'm going to have less pleasure. I'm going to be more contemptuous. I'm going to be less effective. I'm going to be less successful. And that's bad. So you've got to make sure it's a compliment for your real human relationships. I recommend talking on social media with your real friends that you see regularly and not others. The other thing that I recommend is to try to use it. And, and this is my experiment on social media. So, you know, you and I follow each other. You notice that I'm... I, I'm just not going to say mean things on Twitter. I've lashed myself to the mast. I've announced on social media that I'm going to do John Gottman's rule. You know, He has this five-to-one rule with couples, five beautiful things for every criticism. I'm going to say five nice, positive, constructive, aspirational, loving things for every one thing that I say that's maybe a joke or maybe that's a little bit critical. And what I find is after I do the five, I don't even get to the one. I'm just... I'm committing myself to using it it as a positive medium. Does that mean I'm going to get 50 million followers? Nope. (laughs) Because it's a lot more interesting and fun to get the dopamine hit, which is another neurotransmitter, another hormone in the brain that that gives you this little reward when you get stimulated in a way, either positive or negative, that, that you see when somebody is insulting somebody else. I'm not going to be part of that. But I have to say, Twitter doesn't bum me out because I'm only participating in a way where I feel like I'm lifting other people up.
0: Mm. You mentioned um, leaders who succeed with uh, the two different tactics. In this book you unpack coercive leadership right. and authoritative leadership, which I think could also be called aspirational leadership right. in the way you use it in the book. Um, you've also said you're, po- you're optimistic about where we're headed. Why? What, why, yeah. why do co- coercive leaders succeed And don't we see more of that now?
1: Yeah, so coercive leaders. And and, and this is language that's taken from Daniel Goleman uh, from Harvard, who's done work on thousands of CEOs and political leaders, but mostly CEOs. And what he's done is he's categorized them using a statistical technique called factor analysis. That's not important. The point is he, he breaks them up into bins of different kinds of leaders. And on one polar end, there's these divisive leaders. He calls them coercive leaders, and that's kind of self-explanatory. They're the bullies. They're the yellers. They're the, the contemptors. You know, they, they, they treat other people with contempt, and they, they demand immediate compliance. It's a lot of what we see in politics today, certainly what we see a lot of in media and entertainment. On the other end are authoritative leaders. They're visionary. They basically say, they don't say, come with me now. They say, do you see a better future? Do you want it? Do you want to come with me? They're winsome they, they, they make people want to follow them. That's how authoritative leaders work. Now, one of the things that we know from American history is that coercive leaders have succeeded, and they have succeeded uh, significantly, and, and, and they've had a lot of followers, and they've won elections, but they don't last for long, and when they go down, they go down ugly. They tend to fragment. Now, this is not the case in naturally populist countries. You know, France is a much more populist place, and as a result, coercive populist leaders tend to hang on for a lot longer but not in the united states what we see is generally that coercive populist leadership only tends to be successful in the 10 and 15 years after a financial crisis why because a financial crisis what it does is it it doesn't create low economic growth it creates uneven economic growth Where really the economic growth that comes after a financial crisis, it almost all accrues to the top 20% of the economic distribution. There's a lot of resentment. It makes perfect sense. There's a lot of research that shows that leads to a a surge in, in support for populist politicians and parties. Just exactly what we're seeing now, but then it ends. And when it ends, it ends badly for these coercive leaders. The authoritative leaders, they have an opportunity. I believe we have a market opportunity. And here's the key statistic I want to I I I share. And, and, and you and I have talked about this before, but I'm really excited about this. I'm happy about this. There's a group called More in Common uh, that works in the United States and Great Britain. And it, it is kind of what it sounds like. You know, what do we have in common? And they do a lot of very high quality polling and they find that 93% of Americans hate how divided we're becoming as a country. Okay, now, the dark side of that is that 7% of Americans don't hate how divided we've become as a country. Why? Because they're profiting from it. They're getting famous and powerful and rich and they're getting internet clicks and, or they're maybe just kind of sociopathic personalities. But the 93% of us, which is most people watching us right now, and you and me I know for sure, we want something better, and that's a market opportunity for authoritative leadership. It takes longer, it takes more skill, but I like 93% a lot more than I like 7%. So let me play devil's advocate.
0: Um, one of the reasons we see so much contempt played out, even when we know it's a bad habit for us to continue indulging in again and again, surely seems to be because the, media, the market signals we send back to the media is that these are the kinds of stories we want. So... Aren't the 93% maybe just putting on rose colored glasses when a pollster is asking them a direct question? But Hmm. what's borne out in their day to day behavior is that we all kind of like the the quick put down?
1: Yeah, you know, that that is possible, of course. But I look at the data that say that where we say we don't like it and it makes us unhappy. And furthermore, I've got research that shows that when people are participating in a climate of contempt, either being treated with contempt or they're treating others with contempt that it en- enhances stress hormones that it makes people feel lonelier and these are all of the things that we see we see higher and higher levels of stress in our society we see lower and lower levels of social capital and more people say they feel lonely and they're depressed and this is this is non trivially related to the political and ideological climate in america today so what this means to me is that we are in an equ- kind of a suboptimal equilibrium right now because we have leaders Leaders in media, leaders on campuses, leaders in politics, leaders in entertainment, who are making a big profit by actually being in the 7%. And, and look, if that's all you got, you're going to take one side or the other. You're not going to take the other side, screamers. You're going to take your own sides. But we don't like it. We're looking for something better. This is the reason I've always been so bullish on your political life, is because you're not that you're the one guy. <laughs> <laughs> Me and the whole state of Nebraska, man. It's, this is what's so good when I hear you talk, because you're, you're, you're the man for the 93%, and we need more people like this. This is, a, this is a, a pregnant moment. This is a moment waiting to happen in American politics today. We are sick of that, and it's time for us to stand up to the 7% and say, look, I will take it. And, and by the way, I am addicted. I'm an addict, but there are lots of products, this is another point that you're making, there are a lot of products that we consume, and we consume regularly, and that we patronize to, to great market effect that we hate. You know, one of the reasons that the, you know, the, 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 the cigarette companies are now trying to make cigarettes less dangerous and even less addictive is because people started to figure out that tobacco was something that people are addicted to and they gave, spent a lot of money on, but they didn't like it because it was hurting them. That is the product that we have in contemptuous politics today As, as you know, with the vehicle of things like social media. We do it all the time. We're stuck on it, but we don't like our lives, and we want something better, and we're waiting for that something better.
0: This book is filled with fascinating social science research, so I don't want to, as a historian, force history onto you. But since you just brought up the 2008 financial crisis and how this sort of uh, division of unequal growth leads to a lot of envy and and contempt as a product, and then these habits form and then they're reinforced, um, do a little more history for us. Thirty years ago, there wasn't as much contempt in American public life as there is today. Right? What What are the historical reasons that led us to get here? Why do Why, why did we get into this vicious cycle?
1: Well, so thirty years ago, there was less, but that's it's not to say that that we're in an all time high. I mean, there, there's a lot. You statistics, historical statistics, are always really tricky to use and, and pretty easy to manipulate. It is true that we are as politically polarized as we were at any time since the American Civil War. However, you've seen waxing and waning of highly contemptuous politics. Again, what you see is that generally following a financial crisis, you have a ten or fifteen-year cycle of populism. The populist uh, uh, political rhetoric is almost always contemptuous. It's almost impossible to be a very, very positive populist. Now, now I'm I'm encouraging people in 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 this. Book and in this interview and our time together is for people to be positive populists, to be authoritative populists in a way, to grab that 93%. But that typically is not how we see populism take form. So there's a lot of historical trends that, that have happened along the way. We see times like this. I mean, the late 19th century, where in 19, 1892 and 1896 we had we had financial crises, one on the back of the other, one because of the silver bust. One, because of a railroad bust and the result of that is that we had the 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 the, the surge of popularity of William Jennings Bryan who was the Democratic candidate for president in the yeah 1896 1900 took a year off 19, oh, anyway he was absorbed finally into the Woodrow Wilson administration just to kind of get him out of circulation but he was a he was an incredibly contemporary contemporary looking political figure I mean he was he was, you know, he was talking all the time about foreigners taking your stuff and these rich bankers, and he was anti-establishment. He was really, really super populist and, and actually pretty hateful, and his policies were pretty bad, and he was contemptuous kind of 24-7. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm not a Brian fan, but
0: given that he's a Nebraskan, I'm not <laughs> going to join in in your berating of him and his cross of
1: gold speech, like... but he,
0: he's one of Nebraska's sons and he had a whole bunch of angry rhetoric. He
1: had a whole bunch of angry rhetoric. I mean, you, are I, 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 I admire your appreciation for your fellow Nebraskan. There is no Nebraska politician that is more different than William Jennings Bryan than Ben Sass. Well, uh, There's a whole bunch
0: of stuff we could say about football being triumphant in my era and back in his day we were weak. But um, let's pivot to history, future a little bit. Your optimism Mm. about what comes next is partly driven by a a pretty charitable anthropology that Americans are going to learn some of these habits. In a little while, um, I'm going to go to the concluding chapter of this book uh, where you have your five rules. uh, Because there's a whole bunch of really meaty um, stuff that we should go to there. But... I think one of the criticisms of your book that I suspect as it hits the bestseller list next week and the week after that you're going to hear people saying is, well, wait a minute. Contempt as a habit for people who have ideas that are policy ideas that you differ with, that's pretty stupid. But what if the ideas that you're critiquing are from people who are actually contemptible? Mm. Isn't there a moral relativism implicit in your argument? Aren't you saying, Arthur Brooks, um, that we shouldn't regard anybody else's really terrible
1: ideas as terrible? Hmm. You know, it's a, it's a criticism that I'm going to hear a lot and I actually have heard. I've, I've wrestled with this because, you know, I have treated people with contempt. I have a lot. And, and I have prayed about that. And I've had an epiphany about that, that at least when we're talking about our fellow Americans, and I'm not going to break into foreign policy and the whole thing, because I don't know how I feel about that, but at least among our fellow Americans, what I've done wrong in treating other people with contempt is not separating people from their ideas. I think that there are terrible ideas. I think there are hateful ideas. But I don't think there's really ever a very good reason to treat other people with contempt. You know I, I think there's reason for for parody of other ideas. There's reason to go hammer and tongs. you know I, I'm all about disagreement because the competition of ideas is what what's most fundamental to a free society is what separates us from China is that we can you know have public disagreements and not have a knock in the night and a jack booted thug. I love disagreement. that's the that's the essence of of avoiding stagnation and mediocrity and becoming really an excellent country. So, so, so let's keep disagreeing, and, and let's disagree vigorously. But that's different than saying, I disagree with your idea, and so you are beneath contempt. You are a worthless person. And I didn't make that distinction enough earlier in my career, and I wish I had, and I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. Now, the part of that's practical, right? Here's the practical reason. As I said before, nobody in history has ever been persuaded by hatred never happened. There's a lot of social science research in this book that talks about the boomerang effect where you're more likely to make your interlocutor more radical yeah. by treating them with contempt. So that's a practical reason. Yeah. The second is moral. And what there's a story I tell in this book about being at this, this rally, uh, a conservative rally. You know, I'm, a, I'm politically conservative and, and I was talking to a bunch of conservative activists and I agreed with them and I said in the middle of my speech for whatever reason, let's not forget the people who are not here because they're political progressives. And I want you to remember that they're not stupid, they're not evil. They're just Americans who disagree with us. And this lady says, I think they're stupid and evil. cheers <laughs> <And laughs> go up all right, over the place. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I know it's a joke, right? right. I, get it. I didn't think I was making an applause line with that. But at that moment, I thought about where I grew up. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in Fremont, Nebraska. Right. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. And, she was and, talking about your family. She was talking about my family. She was talking about my friends. Right. And I, <clears throat> I took it personally. So there's a moral reason not to treat people with contempt. That's why I'm committing myself to not doing it. It's a practical thing, but it's also a moral thing. And so that's the key thing to keep in mind. Don't treat other people with contempt. Separate their ideas from them. Remember that they as people, they want a lot of the same things that you do. They want the best for themselves. They want to support their families. They want the kids to grow up in safety and security. They want a great country. Most of them, the the vast majority of them, they want to help the poor. So establish that common moral center and then disagree about the ways to meet it. And if their ideas are bad, go hammer and tongs. But I can tell you, when you establish that moral core with another person, they will listen to the ways in which you disagree. And they will be able to listen to your, your ideas with, with warm heartedness. If they're in the 93%, and you know, that's the percentage I like to work in, because that's, that's where we get the margin for America.
0: Mm. I want to underscore two things you said there, because they're so important and they come out again and again in the book. Uh, The first is, you say, you exhort your readers uh, to disagree better, not disagree less. A really basic point, once you've sort of uh, swim in the sea, I've heard you make this case a whole bunch of times, and to hear it stated so clearly in this book, i recommend that everybody read this, if for no other reason than to internalize that. You believe in a healthy, aggressive, rigorous marketplace of ideas, a competition of ideas. The question is, how, what, are, what are the rules for how humans treat each other in that competition? Right. It isn't that every single battle, uh, whether or not a $15 minimum wage will ultimately be constructive or not, um, that's not a good versus evil conversation. That's a practical versus impractical, prudent versus imprudent debate. And you start with an assumption about the person you're arguing with. So the one is you defend argument. Vigorous disagreement and debate throughout the book you just want us to talk and learn the habits of getting better at how we do it right. but the second is I think it's premised on a theory you have of motive You you talk about other people's motives and you think we need to relearn our habits about how we ascribe motive unpack that a
1: bit Yeah, so you know one of the things that the the, the worst the weakest kind of argument that we make in political ideology today, and the big, the bitter battles that we have today is ascribing motives to the other person. So, wh- wh- anytime you're in a political argument, and somebody says, "I know what you really want," right? And and the funniest thing is that liberals and conservatives do this in equal measure. And this is not you know both sidesism at all. I've just been in both communities, and I and I see this constantly. Where you know, where I know what conservatives they want. They just want to lower taxes to Charles Koch and his billionaire buddies. You know, I hear it all the time from politicians when they're talking to the, to the sort of the, 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 the sycophantic crowds and people are, you know, firing them up at their own rallies. And conservatives do the same thing. He says, I know what Democrats want. They just want to keep people poor and dependent and voting Democrat forever. That is insane. Neither one of those assertions is anything close to the truth. And the truth of the matter is that we don't even know about the either that we're vilifying with full knowledge that we're saying something is untrue, which is reprehensible, or we just don't know what the motives of the other side are. It's amazing. I saw these data recently that shows that the the average liberal thinks that 40% of conservatives make $250,000 a year or more. (laughs) It's 2.5%. The average conservative thinks that 40% of liberals are gay or lesbian. It's 6%. These, if we don't know anything about yeah. each other, yeah. how are we going to know anything about each other's motives? So assuming motives of the other side is a big, is a big mistake. It's a, it's a weak way to argue. It's the best way to start contemptuously. It's the best way to make sure you persuade nobody. Yeah. And ultimately, as such, it's the best way to lose. And so that's one of the things that I key, a key point that I make again and again and again is don't assume motives at all. Take people's arguments on their face and ask people, about what the moral motive is. And it's amazing when you do that. It's like, it's funny, and I started doing, let me give you an example of when I did this wrong and how I fixed it, as a, you know, as a, as a policy analyst. When I first came to AEI, as president of AEI, and looking, I'm the president of this think tank, I should know better than this, but I was engaged in one of these battles about the minimum wage, because that's been going around again, around again, and again, and again. I've seen tons of data that show when you increase the minimum wage, especially a lot, that you shave off the bottom rungs, of the ladder, and it hurts people at the bottom at the bottom of the income distribution. And I would make the argument that people, they just just like this, it's just populism. You're just pandering to the crowd. You're making people think that they can just, the government by edict can pay poor people more, make companies pay pay poor people more, and as such it'll, it'll make a thousand flowers bloom. And you know it won't work and you're being cynical about it. And I thought about it, I thought that's actually not it at all because I had conversations with a bunch of my liberal friends. You know what they want? They want to make work pay. (laughs) <laughs> they want people to be able to support themselves and their families better and I thought hooray you know this is what conservatives liberals have in common they want people to have more dignity in their work and they want their work to pay more once I recognize that I can say I understand your motive I think I got a better way of getting about it that won't have these neg- negative secondary consequences that's a productive conversation that's how you argue on the floor heard you do it 100 times that's an important way to do it and I stopped assuming motives I started listening more, and then I started disagreeing more on policy. And I think I'm, I think there's actually a potential for progress.
0: What uh, devil's advocate again? W- what if the seven percent category you talk about? Course of leaders or cynics, or I don't know all the words you're using, mm-hmm. willing to use about the 7%. But what if a big part of our problem is, that, uh, though there are more than two sides, but on policy fights, a, a right end of the continuum to a left end of the ideological continuum, what if there's a second dimension that we're missing, which is the spokespeople, the people who are on TV all the time, the people who are running for elected office? and the and the real people who live in neighborhoods and are raising kids and, right. and trying to build a better mousetrap or a new app or uh, raise money for the Rotary Club. Uh, what if most people are what you're saying, but what if a lot of the leaders of both sides are as cynically coercive as some of grassroots America might believe they are?
1: Yeah, then but, what's your theory of change? You know, it's funny. When you said that, I just recognized something that I'm doing wrong. Um, you said, you know, the cynics, you know, the people who are firing people up, the people who are manipulating other people. And the way that you said it, it makes me sound, I think I'm actually treating the 7% with contempt. And, and I shouldn't do that either. So I have to reassess that. that was really, that's actually, this is a good epiphany for me. You know, um, so, so what about that? You know, what if the leaders are actually doing that and, and, and we don't know how to change leaders because leaders lead? <laughs> this is your point. They have so much leverage over us. That they can keep us in thrall. Effectively. Maybe they're they're the people who are vested in Mm. the contempt
0: industrial complex.
1: Yeah, no, and and in point of fact, I think that is true. I think that that there are rewards to being part of the outrage industrial complex. I think that their rewards are in money and power and fame and clicks. I mean it's a very rewarding thing. There are lucrative cable TV contracts that come (laughs) from making sure that you keep saying every night you go on TV and say, You're right if you're watching. And the ones who are not watching, they're stupid and evil. I mean, that's that's a big business, or your favorite columnist. Almost always your favorite opinion columnist is going to be somebody who scratches your confirmation bias, who says that you're right day after day, and the other side are knaves and fools. That's a very common thing, I mean, that's how you get a lot of popularity. But here's the good news, I think, in a in a country that's driven largely by democratic capitalism, the people who purport to be the leaders, most of them aren't leaders, they're actually market followers. This is the key thing. Look, I'm taking cold to Newcastle by telling you this because you taught me this. I remember you telling me this. People who say they're leaders by following these market signals of contempt, of hatred, of anger, mixed with disgust. This, that they're they're actually following what they think that people are willing to put up with. Look, if you're going to make an addictive drug, people who sell meth, they're not leaders. They're market followers. There are a bunch of people out there who are addicted to it and are going to continue buying it. Leaders are the ones who say, here's how you can stop being addicted to meth and have a better world, have a better life, have a better family. And that's what we need as real leaders. So political movements, they tend to be forming around parades that are already going down the street. You know, there are people jumping out in front of parades and saying they need a leader. (laughs) What we need to do is to change the parade. And that's what this book is all about. How can we make the parade better toward a better destination? And followers who call themselves leaders, they'll fall in line. Let's change gears a little bit and go
0: to your two, almost 2 full chapters on storytelling in here. There's a professor at the Yale Divinity School who used to talk a lot about the fact that Jesus gave them stories. And a lot of times the scholarly community thinks the more and more abstract the idea, the more and more... Uh, narrow and precise, you state it, and you make an argument that the people who are really persuasive, the people who really change the world, tend to be people who get storytelling. So first yeah. of all, what are the lessons for leaders mm. in in how they should tell stories, and how are you using new social science research to underscore this old point about storytelling yet anew?
1: Yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm, I've become a big believer in that. And part of the reason is because it took me a long time to figure this one out. Um, there's a, I saw a body of research on how people learn at one point. And they, it broke down the people who tend to become college professors versus those who don't. And they found that college professors, the type that become college professors, they systematically learn in, in, in a very strange way that's only shared by about 5 or 10% of the population. Which is to say, they learn best by hearing a theory and then hearing a bunch of evidence that supports the theory. That's not how the humans learn. Now, we were trained as academics, both of us. You know, we suffered through a great many years of a PhD, both, and, and that's kind of how we learned, and that's how people taught us. But it turns out that ordinary humans, you and I have had to retrain ourselves, as people who are trying to talk to big groups of people, to, to, to talk about examples and then say, what do we learn from these lessons? You know, Jesus gave them stories. That's the whole idea of teaching through parables is basically, it's like, I, get, I met a guy, you know, and he <laughs> talked to this guy, and he did these things. What's up with that? Here's what's up with that. That's actually how the parabolic teaching works, how, how parables actually lead to greater wisdom. Now, what's happening with that? When you tell a story, and this is how the new brain science works on this, and how, how we all can use it. There's a guy named Yuri Hassan. He's a neuroscientist. He teaches in the psychology department of Princeton. Yuri Hassan has done brain scans of people who are listening to stories and telling stories. And what he finds is, he he calls it brain-to-brain coupling. When you tell somebody a story, that person's brain waves will lock onto your brain wave pattern. Basically, when you say, are you on my wavelength, that's what it means. The only way you're going to get somebody onto your wavelength is telling a story that has a narrative, especially one with characters, and the best character to be in that story is you you know, something happened to me, people will be locked onto you. The listener's brainwaves can get ahead of yours, so they start to anticipate what they're about to say, and that's how they learn. If you want somebody to absorb big ideas, you need to use stories. There is simply no other way.
0: What if America doesn't share enough pre-political ideas in common to make this fixable? you're not writing about politics narrowly. You're writing about the public square much more broadly. But we know that there are all of these things about human dignity that you believe and that you hope most Americans believe. But when we get into the identity politics debate, it feels like a whole bunch of people are saying, yeah, maybe Arthur Brooks has good ideas about how we shouldn't disparage one another about policy goals. Mm -hmm. But when we get to the upstream from policy stuff, the way the, the parade and the stream were first formed... We have to believe things in common there. Mm. And the identity politics movement, uh, which I used to, I confess as a conservative, I used to think was mostly a, a challenge and a problem on the left, and now I increasingly recognize that there's a whole bunch of identity politics problems on the right as well. Explain to us why you're still optimistic in the face of our politics, who seem to be going upstream from policy to identity questions, and yet, in a way that looks less and less reconcilable to many of us, you seem to want to distinguish among different types of identity politics, and therefore you're not as, maybe I think you're not as worried about it as I might be.
1: Yeah, you bus. know, and, and I've laid awake nights about this as well. Think about identity politics. I mean, I've taught at a university. I'm going to go back and teach a university again, and, and I see what's actually happened on university campuses, but also what's happened in American politics today, where identity, which is to say taking one aspect of your, of your story... Picking it out, linking together and saying, here's who I am. This is how you understand me. And furthermore, here's who you're not to other people. Uh, or, or reducing other people to one-dimensional characters because of who they are that you're not. It's a very destructive thing to do. It's actually a form of manipulative power. It's a classic 7% trick to, you, to, to, to take people to, and bend people to your will is by getting saying, uh, we are this one thing. They are not this. And that's why they're the enemy. That's why they are not us. We we don't have to do it that way. I mean, and and traditionally in times of greater unity, where we have more unifying leaders, true leaders, not the follower leaders, but true leaders that are authoritative, that call us to our best selves, they'll use a kind of bridging identity, which is more based on on a richer story. You know, when I get people together, and I've done this these experiments where I bring people together who disagree, really violently on something. I mean, not physically violently, but they're, you know, Democrats and Republicans who are on really on the opposite side of the spectrum. And I want them to talk just so I can observe for my own edification, so I can understand. The first thing I'll ask them is, tell each other about your kids, right? I mean, the one thing that everybody cares about is their kids, and they want the best for their kids. And sometimes they'll use politics as a way to to say, the reason I hate your politics is because I'm worried about my kids. But really what they're worried about with their kids is, you know, influences at school and, you know, the things that their kids are thinking and how confused their children are, whether their children are happy, and they can understand each other. In other words, they use a bridging identity as parent. That's something that we have in common as opposed to something that rips us apart. That's what leaders can help us do. That's what, by by, that I don't mean the president of the American Enterprise Institute or the senator from Nebraska. I'm talking about the leader in your family, the leader in your neighborhood, somebody who has some following or authority or influence in the workplace, because everybody watching us is a leader, and they can use these bridging identities. What do we have in common? What are the loves that we have in common? We love our country. We love our community. We love our children. A lot of us love God. Let's link together and discuss that.
0: You, I wanted to unpack that, the title. We're going to run out of time soon, so I won't do it long, but your subtitle is How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. By decent people... You don't mean um, that 320 million Americans are so fractured that the decent people are somehow out of the mainstream. By decent people, you mean these leaders in every community. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do. Unpack a little bit more what lessons you're going to be teaching the leaders at the Harvard Business School. You're about to take a professorship jointly at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and at the Harvard Business School. You're going to be teaching a whole bunch of leaders, mostly headed to big institutions. Right. Uh, what lessons do you have for them about storytelling and about these bridging mm-hmm. identities? And how do they translate for folks in Schuyler, Nebraska, Fremont, Nebraska?
1: <laughs> the, I, I, will, I do have a real incredible privilege of uh, <coughs> teaching leaders at Harvard. I'll be teaching uh, executive leadership at Harvard Kennedy School, as you mentioned. And I'll be teaching a class in leadership and happiness at the Harvard Business School uh, next spring. And, and uh, as a professor of leadership, I've often thought, you know, what is my highest goal? And the answer is to call people to the common moral purpose that they have as leaders in the first place. You know, why do you want to be a leader? It's funny. I mean, the, the process of discernment is one not of trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. It's really to figure out what you're supposed to want. You know, we're, we're a people at the heart. What do I want? You know, when people are, are, are trying to religiously discern, they're saying, Lord, what do you want me to want? <laughs> and, and, and I think the most important thing for leaders to want is to want to bring people to their highest level of equal dignity and to see their limitless and boundless human potential. That's really what I want. I I want to induce the desire for people to, to fight for the radical equality of human dignity, to fight for the limitlessness of human potential, and then to do that in the way that they think is most appropriate, using the tools they think are right, using the ideology that they assume, and doing it in a way where they, they can see people as these vessels, these walking bundles of dignity and potential, which is what I think that our founders wanted us to be. I mean, it, it's funny, when I think about teaching leadership, uh, under the con, when I talk about decent people getting us past the culture of contempt, I'm thinking about what, and, 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 and this is your bailiwick, and I've learned a lot of this from you too, is what the American founders actually wanted for this country. You know, this is a country that was founded not by <clears throat> gentry and their rich friends, this was founded as an experiment in the pursuit of happiness for, for ambitious riffraff. You know, this is, you know, the, the, the Sasses and the Brookses were just like moving west one step ahead of the law. I mean, we, we, you know, you're, you're, yours stopped in Nebraska and mine stopped in Seattle, but we know what was going on. I mean, it, but, but the system was set up such that we could define our happiness as we saw fit. And pers- we're not going to guarantee it. We're going to pursue it. And to say that you have the right to pursue your happiness, that requires a kind of leadership that protects your dignity and that, that respects your boundless potential. And that's what I think leaders should really, really be all about. Not setting American against American, to not say that the other side, whether the other side happens to be, is stupid and evil, but rather to say that we are all in this together. Two, two basic goals, lift people up and bring them together. That's what great real leaders do. You have been humble enough to be
0: transparent about the fact that you, like I, like all of our viewers today, have been guilty of practicing <laughs> the culture of contempt, even when we aspire to do something better. You've also done something big in this book, which is talk about the need to seek forgiveness. Yeah unpack that a little bit, both um, the sort of moral obligation to do it, but also the instrumental benefits of yeah. the
1: ways you've gone to apologize. Yeah, you know, the, it's, it's funny, there, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of literature about the <clears throat> incredible moral and psychological power of, of forgiveness, which is to say how important it is to forgive other people. There's a lot less written out there about how important it is to seek forgiveness, and when you've done something, you know, when people read this book, I hope they read it. And and there's nobody, I think, who's going to read it and say, you know, thank God, I'm one of the decent people in that subtitle who's trying to fight against the culture of contempt. I hope we all see ourselves as sinners, cause cause we are. We've all done this. It's hard not to swim in the river, the the river that's you know flowing that is America at this point. And I have seen it. And and one of the things that I recommend is to is to ask forgiveness. If one in six Americans have, have broken a relationship with a close friend or family member over the 2016 election, that means that there are thousands of people watching us right now that have done this. How do you fix that? By saying, I love you, and I'm sorry that we hurt this relationship. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be reciprocated. It doesn't mean that the other person is going to say, you're right. I'm sorry, too, but it will (laughs) heal your heart. I've got the data to prove it, but more importantly, I walk the earth, and I've done it myself. And, you know, it's making amends. It's funny. I talk about, I use an addiction metaphor all throughout this book. And anybody who's gone through Alcoholics Anonymous or any 12-step program knows that the ninth step is to make amends wherever possible. Okay, so everybody who's been a contempt addict, and that's me, brother, (laughs) make amends, do the ninth step, and it feels really, really good. And, you know, I've done it publicly. I've done it on social media. I've done it to tens of thousands of people all in one place. And and I think it's going to affect me for the rest of my life, and I'm really grateful for it
0: name a few people who do this well and in the book as i was hoping you would get there all of a sudden you started talking about cornell west and robbie george two guys that in a way are transforming an institution professors at princeton see very few political questions the same way Um, so many divides in american life would seemingly be played out between these two men and yet they're actually friends they believe in each other's dignity and they argue a different way in public Tell us about that and tell us other people who you think are succeeding at
1: this. So, yeah, so Cornel West and Robbie George are both professors at Princeton University. Uh, Cornel West has gone back and forth between Harvard and Princeton um, o- over the course of his career. Both of them are, some of the, are two of the most distinguished political philosophers in American life today. They're on absolutely opposite sides of the political spectrum. Robbie George is a conservative Catholic. He's a social conservative, not just an economic conservative. <clears throat> He's open about his, uh, about his beliefs about abortion and gay marriage which are conservative. Uh, Cornel West, on the other hand, is, is the honorary chairman of the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, he is very open about his, his strong, progressive views. <laughs> Cornel West and Robbie George couldn't be more different. They call each other brother. They have a road show where they talk about their common moral principles and their deep disagreement about the way to hit these, these, these moral principles. They have zero contempt for each other. They have open love for each other. They, they model what we really, really want. They've done it at AEI, and I know both of them. I mean, they're both friends of mine, and, and I've got to tell you, it's incredibly inspirational. I have a, <clears throat> a partner that I work with, and we have a little bit of a traveling road show. His name is John Powell. He is, he's the former general counsel of the, of the NAACP. He's now a professor at Berkeley Law, University of California, Berkeley Law. He's also a professor of African-American studies and ethnic studies. He's a man of the left. He's a man of the progressive left. He's a, he's a civil rights warrior in the style of the 1960s and 1970s. I, on the other hand, am a, I'm the conservative leader of the American Enterprise Institute. And i got to tell you, I love that guy. Why? We met at a national commission on how to lift people out of poverty. And... <laughs> I sat next to him and, and it was like a house on fire. Why? Because we are both, poverty is the thing that we care about the most, is, is, is reaching the people who are at the periphery of American society and trying and, and to find, find a way to relieve their pain and, and improve their dignity. And so now we do a, a, a talk together. We do this co-speech where we talk about the alternative ways that we get it and why we appreciate each other so very much. I see this, I can imagine this coming back to politics. I can imagine you're the leader of this in politics, because you've expressed to me privately the appreciation that you have for certain members of the Democratic Party, including members of the U.S. Senate. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to say they're a bunch of clowns. You told me about people that you really like and people that you talk to and the people you say, you're telling me about a member that, a member of the U.S. Senate, that you say, we disagree and we talk about it and we say, you know, we disagree and we have to set a date so that we can go back and we can debate this again, but we respect each other. I respect his intellect, and I, expect, I respect his integrity, and he respects mine. That's what I'd like. I mean, that's what's so attractive, that's so magnetic about you and your future role as leader for this country. That's why I'm so bullish on it. And, and I think that there are more people like this at the state and local level. so, too. And that's why I wrote the book. Thank you. Um, we are three minutes
0: from the end, so we're going to do a speed round of your five rules. And I'm skipping number one because you've already spoken Got to it, it here. Uh, when, when folks go out and pick up this book, they're going to find a book that is filled with behavioral social sciences that are going to change their view of the, the problem of contempt, the way you resist it, and how you can join the Arthur Brooks cause. Um, but they're also going to find a practical guide. And your rule number one was find your Robbie uh, or your Cornell uh, mm-hmm. or your Frank. But because we're, we're going to move on to rule two, we want to un- unpack who Frank is. Uh, your rule two is don't attack
1: or insult,
0: don't try to win. Hmm. You're weak, man.
1: I know. Why are you so weak? What do you (laughs) mean, don't try to win? You know, Dale Carnegie, when he wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, one of his rules was don't try to win because when you win, you don't (laughs) win, and when you lose, you lose. You know, when you tell someone, you vanquish another person in an argument. That's completely wrong. You, As they say in the, the parlance of social media, you destroy another person. All you've made is an enemy, and an enemy is not a person persuaded. That's not the way to do it. If the business is persuasion try to find common cause, and then debate the ways to get the common cause. Uh, rule number three we're also going to pass over because it is don't assume the motives of another
0: person, and we've unpacked that a good bit. Number four is use your values as a gift, not a weapon. What does that mean?
1: <laughs> you know, people will often they have strong views on social issues, economic issues, foreign policy issues, and they'll just use them as a cudgel and say, since you don't believe these things, you're, you're a socialist. Since you don't believe these things, you want to kill babies. Whatever it happens to be on whatever issue, that's using a, a moral view, something you presumably hold dear, that's beautiful and good and based on your morality, as a weapon. If you think it's that important, you better use it as a gift and offer it up as such. That's the only way somebody's going to accept it and, and try to understand it and maybe, God willing, be persuaded by it.
0: I'm only going to do two more, two more rules. Um, stand up to the man, refuse to be used by the powerful. Nobody wants to be used by their enemies. Hmm. You say in this book that regularly the person you need to stand up to is somebody on your own side. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, if, you, if we make a list of the people, if, if I ask people, you know, think of somebody who's firing up America and making people hate each other, they'll automatically, a, a, a visual pop in of somebody they disagree with. They need a different vision. Who on your side do you you always patronize? Who's because they're scratching your bias, that is making you feel kind of a little bit of dopamine, right? That person is actually trying to use you. If that person is not informing you, is not expanding your moral worldview, if that's not somebody who's taking you someplace you've never been before, that's not a leader. That's somebody who's actually following your market signals, who's using you to get more powerful and rich and famous. And 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 if you don't like that, if you don't want to be used, you got to mute that person. Thank you. Uh, you
0: say in this book, get outside your bubble. Thank you for getting outside your bubble. You've regularly loved your neighbor, um, people that you might differ on all sorts of issues with. You've treated them with dignity. And thanks for sharing this book with us. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. It's yeah. wonderful to be with you. Thanks for the time.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards Podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.